Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and I'm calling in from the snowy, frigid slopes of Park City, Utah, where this year's Sundance Film Festival is currently unfolding. Throughout the festival, I will be rallying the best critics in town to debate and discuss each day's new premieres. So follow along on the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter for roundtable discussions, interviews, dispatches, and more. Welcome to another episode of the Film Comment podcast from the Sundance Film Festival. There might be some background background noise, but that's because this is on the ground reportage. We're on the front lines of the Sundance Film Festival. It is day five, six. I'm tired. It's, it is it's day, day I'm tired. Five. Yes. Yeah. But I'm here with uh, two people who can get me talking and thinking no matter how tired I am. So I'm really glad to have back guests that I just had a couple days ago and hope you listen to that episode. I have Abby. Hi, everyone. This is Abby Sun. I'm the director of artist programs at the International Documentary Association, and I'm happy to be back. And Miriam. And I'm Miriam Bale. I'm the artistic director of Indie Memphis, um, including Indie Memphis Film Festival, and a sometimes and former critic. So thrilled to be reconvening with you both. And last time when we did this podcast, I gave you both an assignment Mm -hmm. because there was a movie that as soon as I saw, I thought, I want to talk about this with Miriam and Abby. Have you both done your assignment? Yes, I accepted and completed the assignment. And I was so grateful because I'm not sure I would have prioritized seeing it right away. And it's been in the news um, since then. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit more about it? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I didn't even mention the title. It's Fair Play uh, by Chloe Dumont. Yeah. And um, it's uh, an erotic thriller. Like, I think it fits that label kind of perfectly. Um, It's about a couple who work in the high finance world of New York. They both work at a finance firm. I'm just going to say finance firm. Okay, a hedge firm. I was going to say, when I first moved to New York, I lived with three people, my college friends, who all worked in finance. And to this day, I do not know what they did. I mean, I do not understand those jobs at all. So, okay, they work at a a hedge fund. Um, They're like corporate go-getters, very kind of competitive. um, And... This, you know, this is kind of a twist in the movie, but it's also the premise of the movie. So I kind of have to say it, which is that the woman who is played by Phoebe Dynavore um, <laughs> of Bridgerton fame. She's I, the fourth daughter yeah, in the Bridgerton I, actually, family. After, after we saw after Abby saw this movie, she texted me. I didn't I didn't think the fourth Bridgerton daughter would go there. <laughs> anyway, so um, she is the uh, she's one half of this couple and the guy. Emily. Her name is Emily, and the guy whose name is Luke is played by Alden um, Ehrenreich. Alden Ehrenreich, and uh, basically Luke thinks he's going to get promoted, but actually Emily gets the promotion, and that kicks off this power uh, game between the two of them, uh, which you know taps a lot into misogyny and kind of masculine pride, but also the particularities of how power is expressed and exercised in the corporate world in the in the you know in a world that really 
is all about money and all about dominance and all about conquest. Honestly, it's it's hard to summarize the movie because it changes every other minute after that first twist. Uh, the dynamic keeps kind of tilting one way and another. Um, and it's meaty in some ways, but I think ultimately it's like pretty trashy and that's what I ended up enjoying about it. It's like a really mm-hmm. trashy kind of cheap, uh, ridiculous, erotic thriller, which at the same time has a is set in a world that feels really realistic. You know, this is how this corporate world operates. So that's my kind of setup. Um, Abby, I'll ask you what you thought about it first, because I know you're actually a fan of this director. You you know her previous work, and maybe you could tell us about well, that. Well, it turns out Miriam is also very familiar with oh, Chloe I Dumont's didn't, I don't, work. I didn't know any of Chloe Dumont's work. Yeah. yeah, so she's made some short documentaries, more mid-length, to be quite honest, around the 30-minute mark, that featured some romantic couples who had very twisty relationships and so to me this was right in her real house and because she's been directing episodes of Billions and Baller I was very intrigued by the high finance um, setting thought it would go perfectly well together Um, I found this film a very twisted pleasurable watch there's one scene which I'm sure we will dig into um, that becomes a little bit of a turning point and it goes into a much darker place but before that it um, stays in this kind of, yeah, I would say it is very much a soap um, of sorts. I would say also that the sexual politics um, are very much gender politics in this film and that it, the film opens with a sex scene that's been kind of um, written about a lot but which I found rather tame. And then the film's actually about kind of maybe sex or the withholding of sex as well in quite interesting ways and the insinuation of what sex can and cannot get us. Um, And those are the things that I found quite interesting. I think some of the more campy soap things, the the trashy elements, those didn't land quite as well for me, but the ending, that's what I really want to talk about. Okay, so I have a different relationship with Chloe Dumont's work. I was introduced to her through um, a film she produced and co-wrote with Nathan Silver on certain terms. And um, yeah, I knew her as a short filmmaker. I realized now, like 10 years ago, I, um, I, I think I met her and she was uh, developing a feature and had or was trying to develop a feature and I don't believe, I believe this is her feature debut. So mm-hmm. um, even though you said it was very much about the finance world, maybe because of knowing that and because of my own experience, it was hard for me not to look at this as the film industry, Ooh. you know? Mm-hmm. And, okay. And especially, I mean, just anyone, any male-dominated industry. And honestly, also from what I've heard about director couples as well Mm. like they can have the same competitive I've heard that often does not go well and um and I but I want to disagree with you too about your I about um the introduction I I didn't find it that trashy I found it just authentic to the genre in a way that I don't see often like it was very much an erotic thriller Mm. but it was um it was just super authentic to the genre and but a little bit um but complicated mm. and really authentic to an abusive relationship mm-hmm. and it reminded me most and maybe only of um bitter moon by polanski which is 
my problematic fave. <laughs> it's my one of my favorite films that I yeah. think is so good about um, like uh, complicated abusive relationships and the power shifts within them. And I think this really got yeah. at that. And but I, I'm so I decided deliberately not to read much, but I've seen headlines and I saw headlines that said this shocking sex scene and i've seen the film what is the shocking sex there is scene no, is it that <laughs> yeah, it, that's it what has, i was saying i think it's I the beginning know. i think just it's the just period blood yes just to describe it's like five seconds long yeah. yeah yeah and for spoiler alert again it's like just perfectly authentic to the genre in that it sets up this sexy film and the sexy dynamic with really great actors especially yeah. alden um Ehrenreich, who is just so good and has been Ugh. so little used and it's so many times like made temp- made me tempted to engage in physical violence with violence which rarely happens like i was like i want to punch this man oh my god it's so authentic to yeah. privilege entitled man anyway we'll get more into yeah. that but he's just such a good actor and his, he was the best part of hail caesar it was so good and then kind of got sidetracked he is into also young han solo i know and that's yeah. where his career got a little bit sidetracked yeah. it feels like yeah. and he's been underused but anyway, we were introduced to this yeah. um, great couple, and then they have this like hot sex scene, and then there's blood everywhere because yeah. she's on her period. But it, you know, and it just perfectly sets up the genre. This yeah. is sexy, and it's a suspense film it that is. you'll be. And the fact that people find that shocking is. I so think weird. the other possibility is actually the spoiler alert. Spoiler alert rape assault scene yes which is not a which sex is scene. i would not describe as a sex scene no me too unless it doesn't actually read as rape to the viewer right. which yeah. is a little bit concerning absolutely yeah. and i yeah. totally agree I, with you it's actually going off of what both of you said um it's interesting you you're making me think about why i use the word trashy and i think part of it is a, is like me pushing back against readings of this film that might be too somber because what I like about the film actually is you know I went into this not knowing Chloe, Chloe Demont's work and just reading the synopsis worried that it would be like a girl boss tale you know about the the victory of the girl boss or something okay. and actually even though the film mounts you know, such a precise critique of, like I was saying, toxic, toxic misogyny, ego, abuse. I What I like about it is that Emily turns out to be so much more complex and m- implicated in that dynamic also to a great extent at many points and sort of a slippery character. And that to me felt also proper to the erotic thriller genre rather than I don't know. I'm, I'm. I guess I'm responding to this fear that people will talk about this, like um, what was that movie, Promising Young Woman, or something. And it's not. It's actually way more complicated than that, uh, because I think it, like you're saying, it stays true to that genre in which there is that social, uh, authentic social setting and commentary, but also it's treating its characters as characters and not representatives necessarily of certain stances or certain mm. types of people. And then, you know, I think that's also what's interesting. You know, you said that that rape scene that some Mm -hmm. people might not read it as that. And I think that's why it's kind of so powerful is that Mm -hmm. it asks you, you know, ultimately it's asking it might ask viewers to question where they find themselves in the films, like kind of sometimes shifting dynamics and 
re-examine their own ideas of what counts as rape or consent. And so again, it's like not a very... I disagree. How do you do think? You, I mean, because I feel it's very clear in this film. Well, I will, it doesn't I start so, as a rape scene. I mean, that's what's hard. Yes. I think people... I think the fact that like again I said it's a very yes. accurate depiction of an abusive relationship yeah. yes. and she doesn't it's not clear cut you're abusive and crazy I'm leaving you there's a back and forth and yeah. there's power dynamic shifts and I think it's a little different than something like Bitter Bitter Moon which is that the ending might be a little bit of a happy ending honestly like yeah. a, more more clean than this kind of relationship usually is but it's um it makes for a really again yeah. authentic to the genre, really fun yeah. viewing. Um, but yeah, so the the rape scene that we've spoiled. <laughs> so I hope anyone who's listening yeah. to this um, is doesn't start as a rape scene, and I think that's difficult for people. That's, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think that this for people who struggle with reconciling those things about like how there can be consent part of the way, and then consent can be revoked, and yeah. you know that it when might... it's revoked, it's a quiet revocation. Also, when it had been like very loud, the scene before. Um, I didn't find it too quiet. Yeah, I did. I thought no. she yells her dissent. And he continues. Is, oh, and yeah. he's very violent. Okay. Well, yeah. yes, I mean, it is. But to me, okay, so I watched it on the online um, viewing. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that so might, yeah. To, to me, it was quieter right. than what had come before. But, you know, yeah. I think that, like, she is complicated, but at the end of the day, she is raped by him. And so I think that mm -hmm. is what is something that I yeah. I think is going to make but people reckon with, you know, if if we could their just, own incomplete ideas yeah. of this stuff. If you could just go back a little bit, too, because yeah. there's yes, some Abby. more things. Yeah, I, I think So this comes this fairly late back and forth. in the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah so... There are a couple of things that kind of like really smartly highlight all of this. It's that it takes place like it appears to be within a week's period of time. Um, and then also this couple not only are engaged in the first scene of the film, but they also work together yeah. and they have to hide their relationship. Um, and so this is where all of the workplace dynamics and the kind of um, film industry finance aspects come through. And they're also weaponized yeah. by um luke's character the, the character of luke in ways that are like quite astonishing um in in some ways that i found just so insidious when when for instance um very early on after um i mean there's kind of this amazing scene when one of the portfolio managers one of the managers of this hedge fund that they work at is fired and is seen destroying his office and it's um you know kind of in a fun sequence at that point all of the um analysts are looking at him and then start speculating uh who is going to take the position and at this point Phoebe Dynaver's character Emily overhears that it's going to be Luke um they have oh there is this second sex scene where they have like celebratory yeah. um sex and then she receives a phone call late at night turns out it's the fund's um founder and their boss and the job is actually going to her. Um, and she receives this call very late at night. It's like 3 or 4 a.m. And then when she returns, um, there is like this amazing kind of interplay between her face and her 
um, in the way that Luke treats it. And you can see his hesitance. He says, congratulations, I'm so happy for you. But there's this amazingly calibrated yeah. hesitance. Yeah, that and, like and festers. It's, yeah. And it's stark, the contrast to her reaction when yes. she initially thinks that he's going to get yeah. the promotion. I mean, she, her face and, lights up. Yes. And, and then immediately after that, the character of Luke says, like in this kind of concerning boyfriend way, oh, did Campbell touch you? Right? God, Campbell that, being their just, founder. And like curdled. the seed of doubt is like, to me, like that is, it's so insidious and it's yeah. portrayed like, like, I mean, it just, I can't stop thinking about that scene. And it yeah. festers and festers that seed of doubt and it's, uh, yeah. No, and it's so predictable. That's what, like, it's such it's a... cloaked in this, like, caring, paternalistic, like, yeah. the, exactly. the good boyfriend. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's also, I mean, that's the, the core of the, I mean, aside from this rape and violence scene, the core of the abuse is this, like, um, mm -hmm. uh, like emotional nagging mm -hmm. and say, basically saying like you basically making herself doubt herself like the only reason you're succeeding is because uh you're a woman and they want to sleep with you and you probably slept your way to the top and saying that to other people mm -hmm. yeah. and that is so classic uh, so it's so classic. ubiquitous I yes mean, it's, it just it feels so that's the thing it feels so predictable in this screen skin crawling way yeah. and you know i think maybe this is the one false note in the movie for me almost is that she genuinely seems like amazing at her job right i mean you see her making these calls and these very canny business de decisions she, she's super confident not afraid to like speak up how did she not realize this man is a bumbling idiot? Clearly, he's like because so you. This is what happens in know, abusive know, relationships. Yeah. This is classic. That is like you know very like confident on the outside right. woman. Yeah. So I mean, for me, it's like it's the false note, but I also like it's I understand. Yeah. You know that this that you just don't and it, and you you kind of pick up that she's from a different class background than him. Yes, yeah, I wanted that, to bring up the class key, background. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, yeah. Yeah, like she's from Long Island and working class and and he's I think it's very hinted that he's um he went to Yale. He went to Yale. Hit, like, he got a job. favor. It's spoiler alert. He's a, a nepo favor. baby. <laughs> he yes. is the the classic like privileged entitled um mediocre man yeah. and um, he loses they, the firm money and and those <laughs> men get very angry i will say that this film also i mean the, it is definitely like it, it is very genre it's not super realistic and it covers some of the same issues that don't worry darling did but mm -hmm. so much but successfully did you say don't worry I didn't, but it's a disaster it made me bring out my pen and write criticism again because it was such it was an example of a film without a director it was complete disaster you haven't seen it but there's okay. that this is the theme in it that there's um because what we're not mentioning is that um that luke ends up going through this like um, gets a sort oh, of guru. Oh, the self-help guru. Yeah. Right, oh, that's and, the, that's and the that, that, detail. That yes. happens in Don't Worry Darling as well, and it ends up being, and it's a twist, and it's just so bad, but it's about a good subject and so mishandled. And this mm -hmm. does exactly the same thing, but in a more contemporary setting. I mean, actually, that's contemporary too. But um, anyway, but I, the, the, the only comparison I can make to it is that, that um, 
his guru kind of gives vibes of like Tom Cruise and Magnolia. That 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 huh. that. Have you seen well, that? That, that? Yeah. Well, worship the cock. There is that, but I was thinking like the um, but just because you used the word negging as well, like yeah. all of the like men's rights, like oh, the that's dating true too. people, like that's, that's, what, the, that's, that's what came what to I my mind thinking. too. Because yeah. or like Jordan Peterson style, yeah, you're probably yeah. right. People, you're probably right. Because what, even though we don't see too much of what this guru is saying, it's clear that it's kind of this um, men's rights language wrapped in the language of self improvement, okay. you know, and. Um, and he he slowly starts weaponizing it against Emily, but he also becomes really obsessive. I mean, he's clearly trying to compensate for the feeling of loss of some kind of status or ego that he's experiencing, you know, because of his his fiance getting a promotion by just obsessively getting into the self-help stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a, almost a stray detail, but it says a lot. Oh, it's so key. It's yeah. more, more, I mean, it's definitely key to the plot. And I think in like, for instance, Don't Worry Darling, the the self-help thing that he goes through was directly modeled after Jordan yeah. Peterson, who I'm less... Oh, okay. So it's, it's very much that. And it was about yeah. like what happens if the woman is more successful. And yeah, so these... You're right. I think mm. that's closer than the Tom Cruise analysis. But um, yeah, I mean, let's talk about... I mean, even though it... I mean... As much as I love erotic thrillers, a lot of them are very bad mm. and very um, um, not nuanced. And this was authentic to the genre and very nuanced depiction yeah. of privileged, mediocre men and the complications of abusive relationships. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I should clarify a bit. Yes, I think that the interplay between Emily and Luke in the film is very nuanced and very much in the realm of realism. Yeah. To me, the parts that I found soapy were the mother, mm. Emily's oh, mother. Yeah. Um, and to me, this is um, kind of a rare misstep. I understand. So basically, it was giving the fact tar <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Still haven't seen Tar, but to yeah. me, it brought it more into this realm of like non non realism exactly. rather than like like, but not necessarily soapy. It was like there's it's like well, it heightens a certain tension between the who can know and who can't know in the film that stems yeah. from the workplace relationship thing, and it turns out like Luke hasn't actually told his parents, so this yeah. is like she's like I the Chekhov's a mom. <laughs> she's like the gun <laughs> waiting to go off. With the revelation. Yeah. yeah. And then once we get to, there's kind of this surprise engagement party that occurs at the, near the end of the film, which is also the scene of the, the rape scene, the yeah. setting of the rape scene. Yeah. Um, and um, like the way that it sets up and the way that Luke kind of appears and what happens there is like terrorizing and vivid and yeah. like kind of the stuff of like it's it's like gaslighting yeah, actually totally at gaslighting. Its, it's, totally, it's literally yeah. gaslighting yeah. and i found it no he's he's 
the the gaslighting element of his character pretending everything is normal when he's been terrorizing her is like and the setup of this engagement party that he shows up to when you expect him not to i found that whole setup um more surreal than Mm. soapy and Mm -hmm. so it felt like this sort of you know this wooziness of that gaslighting of that like what is what is reality you know like that that feels and you know he the the way he says at the end i've been nothing but supportive and it's like it's not just gaslighting her but i i think on some level gaslighting or like he believes it. I mean, he believes it just because he has these external gestures or that he's talked himself into saying, into thinking that him asking about whether she had any sexual interactions with Campbell is like coming from a place of concern. I mean, there's like almost this deep delusion. He's a you know, sociopath. I, be, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I thought that way too until the propose, the second proposal scene when he's begging <laughs> Campbell. Yeah. So Luke Basically, there is a second portfolio manager in the last act of the film who loses his job yeah. uh, quite unexpectedly, though there's some, a couple of hints that it's going to happen. Um, and then so there's this is another a big spoiler, by so, the way. Yes, yeah. apologies. We are like deep beyond spoiler yeah. <laughs> zone at this point. So there's a second chance for Luke to receive the promotion. And Emily is still busting her ass to, yeah. um, you know, for him in many ways. Um, and there's this scene where Luke essentially it's it's implied that he takes all of this knowledge that he's gained from the self-help guru um, and is applying them to the scene where he's begging for the job yeah. basically from Campbell and he gets on his knees and I was like this is the real proposal scene actually right the yeah, way you yeah. set that yeah. up is the second yeah. proposal I will say that I you I think you all had a little bit more problems with some of the tone my only problem with the film my my really major only problem is the Campbell character played by a brilliant actor mm. Eddie Marson who's in Happy Go Lucky mm. and other things has a terrible American accent oh, he's yeah. a British Wait, I yes. does it does he well, even have an American accent because, because on the phone call he sounds completely British and I was like are these two different characters I was so confused. it was so bad sometimes it sounds British sometimes it sounds flat American sometimes it sounds like he's from like the Bronx it's really I bad actually was like maybe there's another character who's like on the phone with her who I I am not understanding well, who this he does is. bring up like I mean so one thing that you might notice also from watching the film in the credits so it was shot in Serbia to save money um I'm oh, wondering yeah. if there's like not enough in the production budget to fly over American actors we all I, I mean, don't know it was a very international cast <gasps> yeah, yeah. and so I mean, that was very a, clear he's, he's a great he's actor well so the film takes the place he's yeah. in New York Good. but it's yeah. like you know this total yeah. stand-in yeah he's he's I think he's very well cast for the part. It's just like his accent is all over the place, yes. and it's just confusing. Um, but yeah, yeah. But, but he's he's still good. Like when 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 yeah. he doesn't when his when his accent doesn't slip. He's, the, he's, the one thing I just also want to talk about before we move on is you know we're talking about Luke's character a lot, mm-hmm. but I think Emily's characterization is what. I found mm-hmm. really interesting because, like I said, she's kind of slippery too. And they're like that moment where she's like almost like trying to, you know, coerce him into having sex because he has been ignoring her. There are these, you know. The, oh, yeah, the kitchen scene. Yeah. yeah. I found that choking, but she does accuse him of stalking. Yeah. That well, was a that, very interesting that, scene. I mean, also when, you know, at their party, I mean, she hits him with a beer bottle. 
He deserved it. No, I, but I'm saying like she, that's what, that's what makes it like more interesting to me than something more like straightforward. Well, there's also the fact that um, not only does she get promoted over him, she actually becomes his boss. Right. Because it's the portfolio manager that he works for that got sacked at the beginning. Right. Um, so there is this, I mean, since you already name dropped Tar, there is this kind of Tar-esque element to like, can women also be abusers? I found this much more interesting than Tar and thinking about like what power dynamics mean because she is his supervisor at work. And there are like, it's quite interesting because there's things like that I think about as a manager at work. Things like when there's a slight hesitance in responding or you overanalyze the tone of people that you manage. This is something that I've been talking and thinking about a lot. Like, what what is all of this? What does it all mean? Yeah. Yeah. Something that I was thinking about, we've we've kind of talked a little bit in circles, but going back to that last scene of that, the rape scene that starts as, Basically, it's a little bit shocking in that she wants to have sex with someone who's clearly psycho and been abusive. And, but and which is text, like, which happens a lot in a textbook abu- yeah. abusive relationship. But what I also found interesting about it is, you know, she's, she's, there's clearly this like submissive element to her and their sexuality. Absolutely. And yeah. that is also interesting. And also, like, we know that, like, you know, it's very known that powerful men love being submissive in bed you know powerful executives love oh. being submissive and love having dominance like you know yeah. and so like that was really believable for me yeah like that she would be so good at her job and then easily slip into this very submissive role sexually yeah yeah and then I just want to say the ending, um just uh but I maybe really won't spoil this because this was a really quite interesting surprise to me because I wasn't sure. Well, first of all, I was actually quite scared for Emily, the character, because the moment of separation is the most dangerous moment for women who are exiting abusive relationships. Um, When she comes back back, to the apartment alone, I was so scared for her. I was like, girl, like, I I don't know, just don't. He's scarier when he's normal. And then it's scary when he's just sitting there. And then there's like one last power play between the two of them that um, I found very very satisfying yeah. I did I too say. it's satisfying yeah. and that's what I mean it's yeah. like a happy ending it's yes. less clean than than yes. some other films but I found I heard that someone in the Q&A asked about her being violent and was she endorsing violent and, and mm. I, I think this film is gonna we are obviously your fans but this film is definitely going to be polarizing yeah, yeah and generate a lot of annoying discourse <laughs> I mean it, and a lot of the discourse is kind of similar to like what has fascinated people about Cap person honestly Mm, i haven't seen it yeah which none of us have seen actually but just in terms of like the online the viral short story and everything like what is it is it an abusive relationship i do think that because there are power moves between the two of them because she is his boss at work i will say like the final scene between um emily and campbell um I also found very interesting because this is kind of the Tar-esque, the like institution, like moving to support the people in power. Because the boss Campbell gives a speech at the end, which I thought was, that's very interesting too, because it's about like, he's basically telling her, you know, 
Do, he's saying protect he's, the institution yeah. and that way you'll protect yourself. Like that's kind of what he's saying. He also implies he knew everything that was happening and he doesn't care. Of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, but that's what, you know, he's like, I don't care. Just don't drag the institution through the mud and you'll be fine. We're going to take care of you, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's another, and that's why I think this setting, I mean, what I came away with, it's not necessarily a movie that, I mean, it's really, now that I'm talking to you guys about it, I'm like, ah, there's so much to talk about. It didn't necessarily stay with me that long after watching it. I don't know if it will. But the first thing that I came away with was, this is such a perfect match of setting and, like, genre. And that Chloe Dumont, like, choosing this particular world for this kind of thriller, Mm. it just adds so many layers to it. Well, like rom-coms, like this city is often a huge part of these. Like the, the so having it in New York, even though they filmed it in Serbia, makes sense. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And speaking of rom-coms, mm-hmm. there is, I hate to say it so bad, but a rom-comissance happening. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> it's, here, it's happening here at Sundance and I think some other films that are coming out. Um, but there was a film that I called Rye Lane. Mm-hmm. It's a British film directed by uh, a black woman named Rain Miller. And it takes place in Rye Lane is an area um, is a place in Peckham in South London. And I, I'm I'm in love with Peckham. And it's this wonderful area with a movie theater called Peckham Plex where movies cost $5. And whenever I'm in London, I go there. Um, but it's also becoming very quickly gentrified. And so I was so excited to see it. Um, and I knew I would enjoy it because of the setting. But it was so good. It's so got... This director understands what is good about romantic comedies. And she got like... Even um, the screwball comedy, going back to that kind of romantic comedy, it was so funny. And so um, the leads had chemistry. It's about two people who kind of meet and spend a day together in London. And they're very opposites. And it really gets into that um, screwball comedy, even romantic comedy of like two opposites and banters and as a as a substitute for sexuality but they have real chemistry and it was so strong and the audience reacted to it so well and I just think it was um it's it was embargoed until today and it was um it was so funny and it has it was visually funny and um and unfortunately I just heard today that it is not getting a theatrical distribution and that um, it's going straight to streaming, which is really sad. I think it's going straight to Hulu. I don't know if that's public, but it's, um, um, but it is, it played so well in the theater I was in. People were laughing and it's really a shame that this is not getting a theatrical distribution because it is not only such a strong rom-com, but it's also, um, about black British actors playing black British people. And so often black British actors are playing like Martin Luther King or they have to come to Hollywood <laughs> to have a career. And, and they're playing was, something very regionally specific, it seems, very right? Like Peckham, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's very, it's very real and very seldom depicted in film, unfortunately. Um, and it was um, so successful and I really think it needs to be seen in an audience and it went over so well. And, um, and I think it could be buzzy and successful and I hope that that 
I hope that uh, Fox Searchlight lets it have that its moment, that momentum, and yeah. that theatrical experience, and that I, I hope that it doesn't get buried. I haven't seen it, but it's because you've been talking about it for two days and you've described it so wonderfully. It is. I'm going to try and watch it yeah. tonight. So the public premiere is eight thirty tonight. Yeah, and I also have tickets. Yeah, to it. I mean it'll be yesterday by the time yes this gets to listeners, but. Abby and I are going to check it out today uh, and either confirm or deny everything Miriam said. It's fun. It's. I will say that it has certain elements that I wondered that are a bit quirky. And they're not mm. like quite Wes Anderson quirky. They're more like Hal Ashby quirky, like okay. sort of Harold and Maude. And yet I wondered if like if this were like a, a 90s white comedy would I find this like too quirky and annoying yeah. and I really wondered but I, I don't think so I think it's really well handled and really mm. funny and there's one amazing um, like illusion visual joke that I feel like makes it so clear that this director loves romantic comedies and I'm sure you'll both know what I mean when you see it um, okay. but let me know what you think and we'll I do. hope that listeners also get a chance to see this in theaters yes. Um, we have only a little time left, but I know there's another movie, Miriam, that we've wanted to talk about for a while, and that's Raven Jackson's uh, feature here at Sundance, Aldrich Road's Taste of Salt. And uh, sorry to put you on the spot again, but do you want to say a little bit about what it's about? Sure. Um, well, it's a hard movie to describe exactly what it's about. I mean, I have to, uh, full disclosure, this is a film that we supported at Indie Memphis, and this was actually one of the first feature films that has come through our residency for screenwriting. And so I have a connection to the film, so I'm not unbiased. But rather than describing what, what it's about, I'll describe the style. And it was compared to Julie Dash, to Daughters of the Dust, mm. but I think it's more accurate to say um, it's very close to Malick. Um, but it's, That's, I've heard several people say that. But yeah. it's, like, it's like Terrence Malick, if he were into... Um, nature and skin and sensuality and family rather than like dinosaurs and God. <laughs> this is going to be the log link. They're going to put this on the poster, Miriam. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I don't I don't know if I can describe what the film is about. What I made of it was that it's kind of a multi-generational portrait of black Southern women. Um, it's it's really, you know, I, it feels very obvious to say this, but it really is structured like a poem. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. Because, I mean, I had, even though I know Raven, I'd forgotten that she has a background as a poet. And in our last meeting of the three of us, I had mentioned the Nikki Giovanni film and that as strong as her poetry is, um, I'm, I wondered if the, 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 the imagery and the sequences ever quite matched or transcended her poetry and 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 I question that but in seeing Raven's film that it clearly did it it does that work it's it is I would say the film is well it's it's non-linear and it's about family and in the way nature and rooms remember remember and yeah. and um and it ancestry I really feel the film was doing something new yeah. in its style and in its whole approach and I feel like I don't know if critics 
are going to, especially white male critics. Um, Raven Jackson is is from Tennessee. She's mm. a black woman from Tennessee. And is it from set family. in Tennessee? It's set or is in, it kind of abstractly the South? No, 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 no. Uh-huh. It's set in Tennessee, but filmed in Mississippi. I so see. She okay. grew up in Mississippi, and her family is from. She grew up in Tennessee, but her family is from Mississippi. So okay. it's very. Our um, our organization is in Tennessee, and yeah. some and the, uh, like. Um, my colleagues whose um, families are from the countries that it captured very specific mm. sounds and nature and things in the way that I was mm. talking about Earth Mama did for the the Bay Area yeah, where I'm yeah. from. Um, but yeah, it captures. I think it's. I think critics are going to have a hard time describing exactly what it is. Yeah. And I also will say it's a film. As soon as I was watching it, I was I thought film this is a filmmaker's film. You know, this is mm. a film that, you know, we talk about, you know, critics critics. Like mm. this is a film yeah. that filmmakers will be inspired by, I mm. think, because it is doing something new, but I think critics are going to have a, a hard time finding the right language for it. You know, I felt like almost because the structure and the language felt so much like a poem. And when I say that, you know, I'm not sure if I fully connected with the film or understood what was going on, but I didn't think that that was any kind of shortcoming of the film. It's kind it's like a poem in that it's operating at a very specific frequency. And it 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 are you tuned at that frequency at that particular moment of watching the film or not? Like are you going to catch its wavelengths, you know? And there were certain moments when I did and certain moments that I didn't. And I'm like really excited to kind of see it again and like see like what moments like I connect with and what I don't. But in the sense that there are these elisions that just feel like such individual, idiosyncratic, personal creative choices in the way that you read a poem. And there's like a weird word used. that fe- That's where you feel the imprint of the poet right like there's a word that doesn't make any syntactical or grammatical sense but it conveys some texture or feeling and you can tell that this person is saying something with the choice of that word and you may not be able to articulate what that person is saying to you but that's where you see their hand and I felt that it was full of those choices I mean there's so many things that sort of submerge and then re-emerge there are things that are unsaid and said there's a death that just you just see the funeral and you don't even like really see what the death was and there's like a marriage that you op- that op- there's a marriage ceremony that starts with just close-ups of people's faces in in a church you know what i mean there's all these oblique ways of getting to things that would be events in a dramatic film and the ways in which the film gets to those things just this is not a film that's operating off of some textbook about how to make movies, right? How to cut a scene, how to like structure a narrative. It's so personal. I, I just was very taken with that. I, I I I agree, and I will say that though I do think that the that those plot lines, even though it's non-linear, are clear. I think it does become clear, and maybe it does deserve. A second watch or but I do think that's clear but I really responded to what you said about um how it's like reading a poem and I I just I and I don't have the language for it quite yet as I'm not saying you know only white male critics won't have the language mm. I don't quite have the language but after the film ended 
And, you know, that's always like a good sign of like what it was. Sometimes you don't know like your exact, you know, when the credits go and what your response is. I had a sinking feeling go from my head down through my body. And it wasn't, I've had that kind of sinking feeling in other films that was emotional. This was not emotional. It was something new to me. And it was powerful. And I think this film will be better understood in the future and better appreciated in the future than to, than today. I, that's exactly how I, I feel as well. I mean, there was this melancholy to the film, but I can't call it melancholy either. There was, mm. it was just, yeah, the operating in these frequencies that I, I can't quite name. And I just have to say, this is, this will sound like such a plain thing to say after everything we've said, but it is beautiful to look at. <laughs> oh, it's let's. I would like to mention the cinematographer Jomo Frey, who's been working with Raven Jackson for a long time, and I think is so talented. And he's able, they're just he's able to just shine, and their duo is is really special. And in the Q and A for the premiere, it was remarkable to watch the actors just um, all just like there was a young child actress who kept talking about Miss Raven, but they all were just saying even though this film is. They were all just like, she's a genius. Like she, it's her vision and she made this come across. And um, again, I'm unbiased, but I think it's a yeah. classic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited to see what people make of it. Also, um, you know, I mean, I'm biased. Up. I'm yeah. not unbiased. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You are I'm biased. Unbiased. Um, so we don't have a lot of time and I know Abby has to run to a screening, but Abby, did you want to just... Say, yeah. say something about two, two Ba Thieves, one of your most anticipated films here. Yes, thanks, Devika, <laughs> for the soapbox. <laughs> um, but I do want to really quickly just... So The Two Ba Thieves is artist, um, deaf artist, Alison O'Daniel's first film feature. And it is named The Two Ba Thieves after a spate of tuba thefts in um, L.A. area high schools that occurred about uh, 10 years ago now. So she has been working on this project for 11 years. And um, it does sit squarely in the essay film format, but in a way that is so unique these days. So, so many essay films these days are really guided by verbiage in an effort to make kind of filmmaker positionality clear. There's wall-to-wall voiceover or a lot of it relies on hearing the voice of the filmmaker or the voice of the people in it. And Alison O'Daniel takes these tuba thefts, this removal of these instruments that produce sound kind of as a container, um, a spine that's never referred to explicitly as a way to think about um, the role of deaf culture and the specificity of deaf culture and what the removal of sound can produce as opposed to what it removes. Um, and um, it, it starts out, I would say, if you don't know does this... Does the film have sound? The film does have sound. Okay. Um, and it starts out rather, it's also a city symphony about Los Angeles, um, different parts of it, um, the deaf artist community. Um, it, 
also has characters that filter in and out in different scenes um, that are related to the tuba thefts, but how exactly they're related doesn't become clear immediately. Um, and the sound design is very, very finely tuned and calibrated. It's incredibly rich, um, like to the point where, and it's also um, just because also there's been this little controversy that we haven't mentioned at Sundance Ooh. around open captions. So this is a natively open caption film. This is something that um, quite a few deaf artists, including Christine Sun Kim, who appears briefly in the film The Tuba Thieves, mm. also does. Um, but the way that it's captured is so inventive it's this it, it shows the same degree of depth that the sound design also mm. has um they're in different colors all over the screen it's so detailed and kind of pleasurable a film to read as well as listen to that um so I am someone who has a hearing loss and there were moments where there were quite a few moments where there were sounds that were being vividly described on screen that I could not actually hear. And when I was watching, I asked um, my colleague Maria, who I'm staying with, to actually like listen and see if she could hear it. Because um, to me, like I, I, I mean, so to me, it was quite interesting film because it also rendered clear what it is that I can hear and mm. cannot hear. And and to me it's like quite interesting because some of the the captions describing the sounds are like in the corners of of the screen, like the top right corner or the mm. top left corner, places that um one doesn't usually look at right. for text in films. So it kind of emulates this kind of like what it is that you are hearing, what it is that you're not hearing. And I'm it's directing your yeah. gaze and your attention in ways that yeah. you might not expect. Yeah, but. there are, um, just because I'm describing this kind of cerebrally, um, there are a couple of kind of repeating um, protagonists who uh, show up in the film that are members of um, deaf artist community in LA. And um, we also see folks communally. We see, um, I mean, there's just like, such a collaborative mm. ethos to this that comes through so strongly. And then the sounds of um, sign language, American sign language, as everybody is talking and it's being captioned on screen is incredibly vivid as well. I just, I can't say enough about the film. I think it's um, a really um, like healing experience. Wow. And I think it's a very interesting like experience for everyone. Well, you've sold me. That was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I'm, li I'm like going to run to see this film now. So yeah. thank you, Abby. Uh, I think that's a wonderful note to end this discussion on. And I just want to do a little tease. Abby brought up some accessibility controversy mm -hmm. at Sundance. And uh, we do have a film comment contributor, Emerson Gu, who is going to be writing uh, a Sundance dispatch going out this Thursday that will dig into some of that. So I'm just going to... Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Last year, Emerson actually um, gave me some tips when I was writing about the captioning. Oh, yeah. Online Sundance. Yeah. Yeah. So he's great. And he's also going to obviously write about uh, a bunch of the movies. So I'll just flag that. And then thank you so much, Abby and Miriam. This was so fun. I think this like shook us out of our stupor I hope yes I was so <laughs> sleep deprived and like sleepwalking and you've definitely revived me and it was really fun to talk about these films with you so thanks for having thank me again thank you so much and Abby go run to your screening you have 10 minutes it's right outside thank you everyone <laughs> this is a delight 
The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.